About a year ago, brethren, I had the opportunity to give a sermon to you entitled Raising Boys and Raising Men. And then about two months later, Mr. Wally Smith gave a sermon on Quit Yourselves Like Men. And so I thought it would only be fair to give a sermon to the ladies today, speak about the topic of womanhood, uh, but present this information to all of you because I think all of us need to be involved in the process. As I spoke about a year ago, we all need to be in the process, we need to be involved in the process of raising men. Whether we are one or are not one, we all need to be in the involved in the process of raising women. Brethren, what does it really mean to be a woman or to be a lady? Why is there so much apparent confusion in the world today about what it really means to be a woman or to be a lady? Over the last several years, I've had the opportunity to teach a living university class entitled Christian Women. In fact, over those years, there have probably been about 75 or 80 women who've taken that class. Some of you in this room have taken that class. One of the lessons we talk about in that class is femininity. And we do some readings from the secular world on femininity. We certainly do some from our church literature. It's interesting when you study the topic of femininity today, you jump on YouTube, you read blogs. It's amazing the confusion that is out there about what femininity is or is not. The world is confused, and I think we know that and we understand that. But when we look around and we look at the topic of what does it mean to be a woman, when we look at what society is doing today and teaching today, both overtly and in the undercurrents. It's no wonder people are confused. Women are confused. Men are confused today. What are God's expectations regarding womanhood? And what are God's expectations for his Christian daughters? How do we truly raise godly daughters, godly nieces, godly granddaughters? Brethren, my purpose today is to discuss with you several reasons, several actions that families and individuals in God's church can take to raise girls in a godly way so that they become godly women and ladies. The kind of godly women and ladies that their parents long for them to be and that ultimately their Father in heaven longs for them to be. Today I want to speak to families And even if you're single and you don't perceive yourself as having children in your family, brethren, we're all part of a Christian family, the body of Christ. And we all have roles and responsibilities in this way. Today, I want to help equip families, parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, to raise daughters and granddaughters and nieces in such a way that they become truly godly women and ladies. I want to speak to women, regardless of the stage in life that you're in. You know, one of the amazing things I've seen in the women in God's church is a desire 
to truly put Matthew 5.48 into practice, to become perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. So many of our women in God's church want to become the kind of woman after God's own heart that is talked about in the scripture. And so I want to speak to you today, ladies, because there are things that you can probably do even better to become more of that woman that you long to be and that God wants you to be. I want to speak to men today as well and encourage you to come to a better understanding of the high calling that God has placed on women so that you can encourage them and support them in this endeavor as fathers, as grandfathers, as uncles, and as friends. The sermon is for all of us today. If you're looking for a title to today's sermon, I've entitled it Raising Daughters, Comma, Raising Godly Women. Raising Daughters, Raising Godly Women. I want to start out this afternoon by sharing some statistics with you. Now, statistics can get dry and they can get boring. But some of the ones that I want to share with you hopefully will help you see more deeply into the society that we live in. You know, God has called us to come out of the world, hasn't he? And I think many of us work hard to do that. But sometimes we aren't as aware, perhaps, as we need to be of the impact that the world still has on us and the impact that these trends have on society in general. Did you know that today about 40% of women in the United States will raise their children without a father? These are women raising children without a husband. 40% in the United States. In Canada, that number is about 30%. In the United Kingdom, about 44% of women will raise their children without a father, and they'll be husbandless. In France, the number is 50%. In Iceland, it's 66%, two-thirds. And in a number of developing nations around the world, The number is approaching 9 out of 10. That should strike us when we think about it. This reality is not a condemnation at all. Because in this room, and those who will hear this perhaps later, these statistics strike us personally. It's not a condemnation, it's a reality. At this point in time in Satan's society, Question, though, how, does, how do statistics like this impact a daughter if her primary role model, her mother, has to wear the hat of mother and father at the same time? What character traits does this force a mom to develop? And what character traits does this force a mother sometimes to give up? We need to think about these things. Brethren, nearly 11, 11 million U.S. children are in child care outside the home for a minimum of 35 hours a week. Child care for a minimum of 35 hours a week. Nearly half of one and two-year-olds in Europe are in child care outside the home. Nearly half of them. Brethren, if children are away from their biological parents for that much time, and that many children are away from their parents, who's impacting their value systems? 
Who's impacting their perspective of men and women? Of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. I'll give you a few other statistics. Uh, these are actually pulled from an article written in The Atlantic in 2012 by Hannah Rosen. She actually is a feminist, but she wrote a powerful article called The End of Men, in which she's actually lamenting what's happening to men in society, not triumphing. But she shared some of these numbers, and so these are really 2011 numbers. They've probably changed a bit since then, but I think they'll strike you. About two-thirds of college or university graduates today are women. Two-thirds. Good for women, perhaps. But you create a, an intellectual dichotomy between men and women. And what does that wind up with in the home, when there is a home? Out of the, leading, out of the top 15 leading professions in the United States, women now dominate 13 of them. You know, the media would have you believe that women are this subjugated class, especially in the workforce. Yet the numbers tell really the opposite when we look at it. When we look at the CEO salaries over the last 10 years between males and females, male CEO status or salaries have stayed about the same or slightly declined, and women have rocketed up. Women today, excuse me, many women, studies are showing, now believe that if they're, able to fi- if they're able to find a suitable husband, he may be the one to stay at home with the children. We'll talk some more about that in the sermon as well. What the data also tells us, and this is fascinating, when we think about how women's roles in society have changed over the last 40 years, think about where women were 40 years ago and what their major roles and responsibilities were. Women today are less happy than their male counterparts, the research shows us. And they're less happy today than women were 40 years ago when women had very different roles and responsibilities. More women are employed today. Women make a whole lot more money today than they did. Women aren't, in many cases, subject to their husbands like they were 40 years ago. You would think they would be far happier but according to the data, they're not. Brethren, how do these statistics and the reality behind them impact women? Ladies, how do they impact you? How do they impact your thinking? How do these statistics and the society that models these statistics impact who our girls become? How do they impact your worldview? Ladies, girls, and gentlemen as well. What I'd like to do in the remainder of the sermon is give you several actions that you can take as a woman, as a girl, and as men to reinforce these actions. In order to help women become even more of the godly women that God expects them to and wants them to become. The first action we're going to talk about today is to learn why God has created you. Learn why God has created you and embrace that potential. You know, when we look around society today, it's among many people, men and women, there's, there's not a whole lot of question why God created women. In the back of many women's minds, they, they sort of know. 
Yet isn't there a backlash, a rejection of what many people know they were created to be and to become? Turn with me to Jeremiah 29 as we think about this. Learning why God has created you as a woman and embracing the potential. Jeremiah 29. We'll break into the chapter here. And just a reminder, Jeremiah actually is talking about the nation of Israel. But the principle applies at the micro level too. It applies to us individually as well. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. I love this passage because it shows how personal our God is. Our Father in heaven, our Daddy in heaven. The one who made us. And He made us to look like Him. He made us to think like Him. He he made us to learn to become like Him. And he shares this insightful observation, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. We all know the scriptures in Genesis. When God made Adam and Eve. And he says, I made them male and I made them female. And at the end of the chapter, did he say, oh, this was a bad idea? Or, oops, I shouldn't have made them differently. I should have made them the same so there would be a lot less problems. Now at the end of Genesis chapter 1, what did he say? It was good. We know this. God intended this from the beginning. God says, I know the thoughts that I think for you. I know why I've designed you. I want you to be happy. Why did Jesus Christ come to the earth? John 10.10 tells us. I came so that you can have life and you can have it more abundantly, more richly, a full life, a meaningful life. That's why he came. Malachi chapter 4. God knows the thoughts that he thinks for you, ladies, women, girls. He knows the plans that he has for you. And they're good. They're good. Malachi chapter 4. I think many of you know where we're going. The end of the chapter here in Malachi. An end time prophecy. Where God is saying, I'm going to change things. I'm going to put things back the way they need to be and the way I've intended for them to be for a long time. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and dreadful day of the Lord. Verse 6, and he will what? Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. God wants this to happen. We live in a society, as I think we're all aware, where God, the God of this age, has turned the hearts of the fathers and the children apart. But it's not just the fathers, the patriarchs. It's the matriarchs too, isn't it? God's going to cause to happen and to bring about and to help bring about the hearts of the parents being turned back to the children and the children to the parents. The hearts of the mothers being turned back to the children and the children to the mothers. We heard an excellent sermonette just a few minutes ago talking about all the distractions that are around us and the lack of commitment that we see in society. We see commitments all over the landscape. 
But it's individuals committed to too many things, so it waters everything down. And don't we see that in the families as well in society today? Don't we need a turning of the hearts of the mothers back to the children and the children to the mothers? 11 million kids in the United States spend 35 hours a week or more in daycare? Where are the fathers in that and where are the mothers? Let's look at another verse here. God wants this. God intends this. God has a plan for us. Ladies, he has an incredible plan for you, as you know. Our young ladies, he has a plan for you, and he wants your life to be full and meaningful. He wants you to understand why he designed you the way he did. With the unique interests that you have. The unique way that you look in the mirror. I can stand in the mirror next to my wife, and we look different. She doesn't look like me. You can walk into our closets, and they look differently. I was looking yesterday, and I was counting the shoes. I have two shelves. I won't tell you how many she has, but she's beat me in the shelves of shoes. We're different. God made us that way purposefully. Let's go to Genesis 2, back to the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 are really profound when we study the meaning of the family. Because this is where God created the family. And really, we can take dozens of lessons on the structure of the family, on God's intent for the family, from just these couple of chapters. We think about Ephesians 5 when we think about family. We think about 1 Timothy. We think about other places in God's directives to the family. We think about Deuteronomy 4 and 6. But Genesis 2 is really profound. Because here God lays the foundation for the family. He tells us why it is. And why he created us male and female. Let's look at this together. Brethren, I'm going to review things today that I think you know. So I want to reinforce and bring back to the forefront of your mind concepts that are in there. That sometimes society helps cool off and put on the back burner. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 18, God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. We'll come back to that. It's not good that man should be alone. What's interesting, by the way, is that word good, if you transliterate the Hebrew, it spells out B-A-D in English. B-A-D, bad. Sometimes we can look at this verse and say, it's not good that man should be alone. Oh, It's probably not the best idea for man to be alone. But what this means is it's bad for man to be alone. That's what it means when we take it out of the scripture. That's what God intended. It's not just sort of, oh, it's not the best idea. No, it's bad for man to be alone. That's why God created the male and female. Let's continue. God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and he brought them to Adam, and then Adam begins to name them. But God said, I'm going to make a helper comparable to her, to him. What does that mean? We'll come back to the concept of helper in a little while. But that phrase comparable to him means a part opposite or a counterpart. God said, I am going to make for Adam... 
as Adam is figuring out, yeah, the birds, you know, there's two cardinals. There's a male and a female, and they sort of go together. And there's a, a male deer, a buck, and a doe, and they go together. And there are male squirrels and female squirrels, and they go together. And the elephants and the ostriches and all of the animals are like this. And Adam figures, okay, where's mine? I'm just by myself. God created it that way. He created Adam part. And he created Eve counterpart. Two pieces that he said, when you come together, you'll become whole. You'll become one. God designed us differently with complementary characteristics. But he created us in part. So that we bring man together with woman. And we begin to develop a whole, a whole perspective, a deeper perspective. Something that's nearly impossible to grasp until you put the two together. God brought us together. He designed us. He intended us to be together to teach us more about him and his way of life and what it means to love, what it really means to love in a godly way. You know, Mr. Armstrong used to talk about marriage being a God level, a God plane relationship. It teaches us about him. And in this relationship between a man and a woman in marriage teaches us about him. That's why the worldly ideas of same-sex marriage are nuts. Two men together, two women together, you don't have part and counterpart. You have two parts that don't fit. And you can't learn what God intended to be learned through the marriage relationship. Eve was made a helper, comparable, an aid, comparable, a part, a counterpart to her husband. God wants us to know that. Ladies, you've got to know that. You've got to understand that. God has given you unique perspectives and characteristics that are different, aren't they? You put a little boy on the ground and you give him some toys and you put a little girl on the ground and you give her some toys and they're going to play differently. I can remember my nieces. They would make these things when they were little, um, build build things, and oh, they would make these beautiful things. They would build, and their little their younger brother would come in, like a bulldozer, and just bull it all over. And his dad is not like that. His dad's a gentle guy, so he wasn't learning it from his father. It was just in there, different. God has given women. Capacities for empathy and sympathy and caring and nurturing and taking care of that are unique. Not that men can't do that, but it's something that he's built into the character of a woman. I want to read something to you from another article from The Atlantic. This is a July-August 2012. It's written by a woman by the name of Anne-Marie Slaughter, um, feminist, and in, a woman who reached a very, very high level in the State Department, sort of her dream job. She was one who was really a poster child for the feminist movement about uh, 10 years ago or so. 
But she made some interesting comments. Those of you who have taken my class have read this article, and you may remember some of this. But let me quote from it. And it's a little bit long, but bear with me. I think you'll find it very interesting. She says, 18 months into my job as the first woman director of policy planning at the State Department, a foreign policy dream job that traces its origins back to George Keenan, I found myself in New York at the United Nations annual assemblage of every foreign minister and head of state in the world. Pretty heady experience. On a Wednesday evening, President and Mrs. Obama hosted a glamorous reception at the American Museum of Natural History. I sipped champagne, greeted foreign dignitaries, and mingled. But I couldn't stop thinking about my 14-year-old son who had started eighth grade three weeks earlier and was already resuming what had become his pattern of skipping homework, disrupting classes, failing math, and tuning out any adult who tried to reach him. Over the summer, we had barely spoken to each other. Or, more accurately, he had barely spoken to me. And the previous spring, I had received several urgent phone calls, invariably on a day that an important meeting took place that required me to take the first train from Washington, D.C., where I worked, back to Princeton, New Jersey, where he lived. My husband, who has always done everything possible to support my career, took him and his 12-year-old brother during the week, Outside of those midweek emergencies, I came home only on the weekends. So she's sort of laying the foundation for her, her frustration. She's living in Washington. They're living in Jersey. Husband's taking care of the family, and she's struggling. By the way, the name of this article is entitled, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. Why Women Still Can't Have It All. Let me continue. As evening wore on, I ran into a colleague who held a senior position at the White House, She has two sons exactly my son's ages, but she's chosen to move them from California to D.C. when she got her job, which meant her husband commuted back and forth to California regularly. Satan has done a wonderful job on us, hasn't he, to divide and conquer the family that God designed to be together. When the family is not together, it doesn't function the way God wants it to. Lessons aren't learned, and it weakens our children. Continuing, I told her how difficult I was finding it to be away from my son when he clearly needed me. Then I said, when this is all over, I'm going to write an op-ed titled, Women Can't Have It All. My friend was horrified. You can't write that, she said. You, of all people. What she meant was that such a statement coming from a high-profile career woman, a role model, would be a terrible signal to younger generations of women. By the end of the evening, she talked me out of it, but for the remainder of my stint in Washington, I was increasingly aware that the feminist beliefs on which I had built my entire career were shifting under my feet. I'd always assumed that if I could get a foreign policy job in the State Department or White House while my party was in power, I would stay the course as long as I had the opportunity to do the work I loved. But in January 2011, when my two-year public service leave from Princeton University was up, I hurried home as fast as I could. A rude epiphany hit me soon after I got there. When people asked why I had left the government, I explained that I'd come home not only because of Princeton's rules, but also because my desire to be with my family and my conclusion that juggling a high-level government job with the needs of two teenage boys, was impossible. A powerful conclusion 
by this shooting star in the feminist movement, realizing, number one, I can't have it all, and number two, what? She didn't state it as plainly. She wanted to be with her family. Why did she want to be with her family? Who put that need there to be the wife, to be the mother, to be the protector, to be the one that gives and guides and loves? And certainly we know the answer to that. God designed women, didn't he? God designed you. He designed those attributes to nurture and take care of and serve and love and give to families. Brethren, as uncles and aunts, as parents and grandparents, it's incumbent upon us to teach our girls why God created them the way he did. To teach them what their roles need to be. To teach them what they need to do to truly be fulfilled. Deeply fulfilled. We need to help them understand. And to begin the, to begin to experience the types of environments they can thrive in. And that God intends for them to be in. When we can discover and fit into environments and roles for which God created us, brethren, we will be happy. It's when we take ourselves out of the roles that God designed for us that we're not happy and fulfilled. Hence, studies showing that women are less happy today than they were 40 years ago. Satan's world, brethren, as you know, is designed... To push women away from their potential. Satan's world is designed to push them, to pull them away from their potential, away from roles and responsibilities in which they were designed. Brethren, we have to help our girls see this. Because society won't, will it? Society will push them away with the guilty feeling that if I... Do something like stoop to lead my family. I'm settling for something less. But brethren, that's a lie. It's a lie from whom? None other than the father of lies. Action number one, and you can build on this. There are a lot of scriptures to reinforce this principle. Action number one, learn what God has created you for and embrace that potential. There are women in this room and women in God's congregations all around the world who have. And when you talk to them, they have no regrets. What's another action that we can take? Ladies, what's another action you can take even more? Girls, as you grow up and you you desire to become that woman after God's own heart, what's another action you can begin to take now? What do we need to educate our girls about? Action number two, learn to be a helper. Or you might even say, if you're in those roles, learn to be an even better helper. But learn to be a helper. We read about that in Genesis chapter 1, didn't we? God created Eve, woman, to be a helper comparable to her husband. The counterpart, but a helper to him. Romans chapter 16. Let's turn there. Verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 16. We... we, Read about this leading woman in the church at Rome. A woman by the name of Phoebe. Some of you may recall Phoebe. Paul focuses on her. He pulls her out. And he says, I want you to look at this woman. And I want you to think about her. 
She was important. She had an important role. What was her role? What did she do? Romans chapter 16, verse 1. He says, I commend you to Phoebe, or I recommend you to Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centuria. That word servant, I'm reading in the, in the New King James, that word servant in the Greek is dikonos. Deacon. She was a female deacon in the church there in Rome. We would call her a deaconess. But he says, I commend you to her that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a what? She has been a helper of many and of myself also. Not just her family, but she was a helper of the church. She was capitalizing on those strengths that God built into her character to be a helper, to be a servant, to do for others. That word dikonos, deacon, actually literally translates waiter on tables. That's why um, in the book of Acts, Luke made the comment he did in Acts 6 when he talked about, uh, or actually it was one of the apostles, I think it was Peter, who said it's not good that we continue to wait on tables. But it means a servant. Here you have Phoebe, the servant of God. God designed women to be helpers. Be helpers of people. Be helpers of their husbands. And don't you see that? when you <clears throat> Proverbs talks about how one of the mysteries of life is watching a man with a, with a woman. And you watch the character changes that happen between a man and a woman when, they, when their relationship becomes more intimate. And you watch the character of the woman soften and become reactive to, in a positive way, her husband. As she adapts to him and looks to serve him, to give to him and reflect him and to build him up. This is something that God designed into women's character. Being a helper, ladies, also includes allowing men, helping them. To even take the lead. You know, we live in a society today, don't we? Where, what does society say about you as a woman if you're willing to let a man lead? You are weak. You're being walked all over. A few years ago, there was an article written by a, I can't remember the name, her name anymore. Some of you may recall. Uh, a high-profile woman volleyball player. And... She had been married for a number of years, really happily married, ladies in, in, in all the press. And she made some comments. They said, well, why is your marriage so happy? Some of you may recall what she said. She said, because I submit to my husband. And what's interesting, you got this six-foot-two woman, big woman, imposing woman, Gentlemen who aren't six feet tall, what would it be like to stand next to her, especially if she puts heels on? She makes the comment, and she's, she's, she's a leader in her field, the best in the world. She makes the comment, I submit to my husband. Nobody said, you go, girl. It's your choice. You do it. You know what the press did? They ate her alive. How dare you say that? That flies in the face of all this feminist propaganda. And she's saying it makes my life easier. And our relationship is wonderful because of that. I don't have the time to go into the details of proper godly submission. 
If you want to do that, take my class. You might be surprised at what some of your female compadres have to say. Because it's your female sisters in Christ with the experience of doing that or who are going to put their thumb on it and say, this is good. It's not me preaching it as a man. It's the ladies. But allowing men to lead is critical. Helping men reach their calling to be the leaders of society and families. In In a world where women are encouraged, don't do that. You need to be a strong woman. Don't let a man lead you. You don't need a man. And I know all of you women in here feel that or have felt that by the society around you. I want to read some comments by Mrs. Faye League in the uh, November-December Living Church News. It's a woman-to-woman article entitled, Be an Effective Helper. Mrs. League wrote, After God created Adam in Genesis 2-7, he knew that Adam, the only human being on earth, needed someone with whom to share his life. What did he do then? And she quotes, God made a helper comparable to him. Genesis 2.18, we just read that. And God worked a miracle, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Verses 21 and 22. Mrs. League continues, Here we see that God created woman with the innate qualities of being a helper. She can apply these qualities in all facets of her life, at home, in the workplace, and serving God's church. And God certainly expects us as Christian women to use these qualities to glorify him. I think many of you know that. You understand that. God designed it that way. Titus chapter 2. Let's go back to Titus 2. Paul makes some comments to the church through, or to Titus and to the church through Titus. Titus chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse 3 here. God is giving advice to older women and older men. Here's the roles that I want for you, God says, in the church. Here's what I'd like you to be able to do. Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. To the older woman likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So these are the godly Christian characteristics that God wants for women, that he intends for women. And these make sense, don't they? Verse 4, that they admonish the younger women to love their husbands. (laughs) That's an interesting one. We don't have time to really dig into that, but I'll leave you with a couple of questions. Why would God admonish women who innately love to love their husbands. Why would older women be needed to encourage younger women to love their husbands? All we have to do is think about society today and what society tells women. 2,000 years ago, Paul was trying to combat some of the same societal pulls and trends. Very interesting. Let's continue. They were to love their, teach younger, older women, to admonish younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. Another one we touched on from Malachi, where hearts need to be turned back. Verse 5, to be discreet, careful, careful with words, careful with the way we dress, careful with the examples we set. To be chaste, this has to do with purity. 
to be homemakers. And the, the Greek for homemakers means stayers at home or home builders. To be good, to be obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So encouragement to women, older women, to encourage younger women to do these things. Why? Because society pulls in the opposite direction. We need cheerleaders, don't we? We need people, when we're doing, struggling to do the right thing, we need people to encourage us to keep doing the right thing, don't we? Isn't that one of the blessings of assembling on the Sabbath? We all live in the world. We struggle in the world. And it's nice to come to a place where people are going through the same thing and can say, keep up the good work. I'm praying for you. You're doing the right thing. We need older men to encourage younger men in these areas and older women to encourage younger women in these areas. God created women for a marvelous and fantastic role in this life. And we're reading about some of those things. Men, where does our responsibility come in? Because society pushes us in a way as well to undermine women being able to fill these roles. It does, doesn't it? Men, we've got to understand what God has called women to. That wonderful, cherished calling. That he's called them to. And the better we understand it, the more we can help support them in that. Part of that support, men, gentlemen, if we're not married at this point, we need to obtain our training, our education, the experience that we need to support and lead a family. So that we can place a woman into a position where she can be successful in the way God wants her to be. Again, God says it's not good, it's bad for us to be alone. He wants us to be together. We heard some statistics in the sermonette today about how many are are choosing not to be married. Gentlemen, part of our role and responsibility to God as a Christian is to love and support his daughters. God wants us to be married. He wants us to put ourselves in a position where we can love and support the girls that he made to be loved and supported. I encourage you, keep working in that direction. There's a high calling for men as well, and part of that is to be godly husbands and hopefully godly fathers as well. That's God's expectation for us as men. One of those expectations in the flesh. You know, it's interesting when we think about women being helpers. God created us differently. You know that. God wired us differently, literally. You know, there was a university president in Harvard about 20 years ago who lost his job. Some of you may recall this. He lost his job at Harvard. Do you remember why? Because he made comments that men and women are different. And part of his background was biochemistry and anatomy, if I remember correctly. And he was actually talking about the structures in the brain being different. Brain research over the last 10 years is really incredible. Mr. Weston actually talked about that in a sermon recently. But we know that our brains are wired differently. We'll get into that in 
Well, actually, we'll talk about that right now. If you look at studies that have been done on men and women, <clears throat> we know that women's eyes and ears focus differently in conversations than men's eyes and ears do. And we can actually look at this difference even in infants. You take a baby boy and you take a baby girl. A baby girl, when, when somebody is around them, will focus on the face of the person with them. And they're going to focus on the tone that's being used, the volume that's being used, and the facial expressions that are being used by the person talking to them. And they're, they're going to reflect and read those facial expressions and even react to them. If you talk to a little baby, even look at a little baby girl, and you make a face at her, She's going to react. She's liable to break into crying. Why? Because God designed her that way. There are structures in her brain that have formed differently than they have in the, in the little baby boy's brain. And the structures in her brain, thanks to this hormone called estrogen, have developed in such a way that she's more highly attuned to facial expressions, intonation, and those types of things. Some people would say, oh, that's just intuition. No, it's brain structure. That's why women are more communicative. That's not just something that you learn. It actually is the speech center in your brain is twice the size of the speech center in a man's brain. Not that he can't talk. Might seem like that sometimes, ladies, I know. But it's not true. But it's that your speech center is more highly developed. Think about it. Who did God design to take care of the family? It's the woman in the home. When we reverse those roles and we put a man in that role to raise the children all the time, a man who does not communicate verbally nearly as much, children can't read minds, can they? They need to be talked to. As good as we are at computers, you cannot hook a USB cable into a child, gentlemen, and into your ear and download. It doesn't work that way, does it? God put the women in the household. He designed their brains and their temperament differently. We can show that biologically, physiologically, chemically we can show that now with the brain research that's come out. God knew what he was doing. God wired women to be helpers. God wired women to be helpers. It really is an amazing thing as we think about it. Let me read to you. Um, This is from one of the texts I use in my class. It's entitled, Lies Women Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. Great book, by the way, if you want to get a copy for yourself. Lies Women Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. Powerful book. Not perfect. Uh, the church doesn't publish this. But she deals with some, some lies that are prevalent in society and how there are problems with them. It's written by Nancy Lee DeMoss. She writes, One of the things that strikes me most about the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 is the fact that she is so utterly selfless. Think about helping now. She's not seeking self-fulfillment. She isn't interested in advancing her career having her own bank account, or being known for her personal accomplishments. To the contrary, 
She seems virtually unconcerned about her own interests and needs, choosing instead to focus on how she can meet the practical needs of her husband and children, as well as others in her community. On first reading of this passage, one might be tempted to agree with Anne Oakley's conclusion that homemakers are an oppressed breed. But take a look, a fresh look at this woman. Verse 22, she is well-dressed. Verse 15 and 20, she and her family have food to eat and enough to share with others. Verse 21 and 25, she lives a well-ordered life. She's emotionally stable and free from fear about the future. Verses 11, 28, 29, and 31, her husband is crazy about her. He's, a, he's faithful to her. He feels she's one in a million, and he tells her so. And he brags about her to his friends. In verse 28, her children honor and praise her. Doesn't sound like an oppressed woman to me. In fact, what most women wouldn't, what woman wouldn't be overjoyed to have the same rewards? But how did she get all these benefits? Not by insisting that her husband roll up his sleeves and help out with the household chores, although there's certainly nothing wrong with men doing so, but by choosing the pathway of servanthood, by making it her number one priority after her relationship with God to meet the needs of the family. Interesting observations from an unconverted woman. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. What is this woman? What is this woman? What does this world tell us we need to be as individuals? It tells us we need to be individuals, but doesn't society tell us we need to be on top? We need to be ahead. We need to be number one. We need to be great. We need to be wise. We need to be the best. Whether we're a man or a woman, doesn't society tell us that? And especially if you're a woman, doesn't society tell you that? Matthew chapter 20, verse 26 we see a profound statement here and a profound principle that Christ gives us. Matthew twenty twenty six. Actually, let's start in verse 25. Matthew twenty twenty five. And when he had heard it, they were, when the ten had heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Um, James and John are wanting the right hand and the left hand of Christ in the kingdom. They wanted those major leadership positions. Verse 25, Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Verse 26, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Society tells you ladies today, doesn't it? You need to be great. You need to be on top of your game. You don't need to let anyone put you down. And how do you do it? You advance yourself. Yet what does the Bible say? What did Christ say? You know this. You know this. He says the way to get there is to be a servant. The way to get there is to be a servant. Nancy Lee DeMoss goes on. She says it's true. In spite of all the talk about poor self-image, our instinctive reactions to life are self-centered. She begins to talk about human nature here, doesn't she? How does this affect me? Will this make me happy? Why did this have to happen to me? What does she think about me? It's my turn. Where is my share? And she goes on. She says it's not enough for us to be the center of our own universe. We also want to be the center of everyone else's universe, including God's. 
When others don't bow down before us and devote themselves to promoting our happiness and meeting our needs, we get hurt and start looking for alternate ways to fulfill our egocentric agenda. Doesn't society push us this way? Focus on self. Where God says all throughout Scripture, Acts 20.35, I won't turn there, you know it, it's a memory Scripture. The last part of the Scripture Paul notices that it's more blessed to give than receive. God's way is the way of give. God designed women to help, to be helpers, to be givers. And ladies, you know it. When you're in roles and responsibilities, when you're giving, isn't that when you're happiest? Giving to children. Giving to your husband, giving to your family, giving to your friends, giving to the church. God designed women to help. Point number two, action two, is to learn to be a helper. We need to teach our girls, our young women, to be helpers. It's not about us. It's about everybody else, and when we put everybody else first, wow, how blessed we become. Action number three. What's another action? We need to teach our girls, our granddaughters, our nieces, the young ladies in the congregation. Action three is to develop, if I was going to say this in the world around us, I'd need riot gear. To develop a meek and quiet, not silent, spirit. To develop a meek and quiet spirit, not a silent spirit, but a quiet spirit. We'll talk about that in a moment. How many women today speak and act in meek and quiet ways? Is that what society is pushing women to do? Be meek and quiet. We we have some interesting discussions in my class when we talk about this. No, what is society telling you as a woman? Be strong. Stand up for yourself. Defend yourself. Cut to the chase. Don't take flack from anyone. What's wrong with this picture, though? Parents, grandparents, I encourage you, as we think about this, avoid, I encourage you, avoid the mistake of telling your daughters and your granddaughters that they can be anything they want to be. There's a fallacy in that. We don't want to direct our daughters and our granddaughters into a job or career path that forces her to change her character into something that God didn't intend. And there are job and career paths that will turn a woman's character opposite of what God designed it to be. If we force, we don't force, if we push our daughters and granddaughters into those careers, they will never be fully happy. They can't be. Because those career paths and jobs are forcing them into roles that God doesn't want them in. That's a fallacy. You can be anything you want to be. Men can't do that either. We shouldn't tell our boys that either. You can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. Not and be a Christian. There are plenty of job responsibilities that are wrong. That are unchristian. That break the law of God. Developing weapons, serving in the military, serving in security jobs where you carry a weapon. 
working as a doctor where you know you're going to be on call two Sabbaths a month and you know you'll work. That's not an ox in a ditch situation. That's pushing an ox into the ditch. So telling our kids that they can do anything they want to do, they can be anything they want to be is a fallacy, whether it's to boys or to girls. Let's look at a couple scriptures here. As we think about developing a meek and quiet spirit, Matthew chapter 12. There's a principle here. Matthew 12, again, Christ's words. Christ, by the way, who did Christ create? Remember who Christ was? John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, let us know that Christ is the one as the Word, who created all things in heaven and on earth. Christ is the one, as the Word, who spoke and earth came into being. Christ is the one who spoke and the Spirit moved on the waters and separated the waters from the waters. He is the one that created the land animals and the sea creatures and the birds of the air and the trees of the field. He is the one that molded and fashioned man out of the dust of the ground and woman out of... His rib. This is Christ. He's the one who had this plan. And what did he conclude? Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. Let me catch up with you here. Matthew 12 verse 34. Brood of vipers, he says, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. As we begin to understand this concept of a meek and quiet spirit, this is the backside of the comment. This is what God is looking for. What's the heart behind the mouth and the actions? Let's go to Proverbs 31, verse 26, and read about this virtuous woman. This Proverbs 31 woman. Proverbs chapter 31. and verse 26, it says... Proverbs 31:26 she opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness kindness thoughtfulness gentleness but it's not just her mouth is it it's the heart behind it that's motivating what comes out 1 Peter chapter 3 let's go to the scripture that I've been referencing and that the point references 1 Peter Chapter 3, and we will start reading in verse 3. 1 Peter 3, in verse 3, Peter's giving advice here. He says, do not let your adornment, your, your clothing, your apparel, your appearance be merely outward, the outward arranging of the hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of fine apparel. It's not bad to look nice. And it was referenced, you can go back and read Proverbs 31, you see a woman who was dressed very well. But Peter's saying, don't let the outward appearance be all of who you are. It's that inward person that's even more important. Let's continue in verse 4. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle, I'm reading in the New King James, 
of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Ladies, girls, how many of you yearn to be precious in God's sight? What is precious in God's sight? What are some of the characteristics that are precious in the sight of the Almighty God who made you? A quiet and gentle spirit. The King James says, a meek and quiet spirit. What do these words mean? Let's tease them out slight, or just quickly. Quiet means quiet. It means peaceable. It means undisturbed. It means tranquil. It means settled. That's interesting when you think about it. God wants a woman not to be agitated all the time, not to be uptight, either physically or emotionally or even it coming out of her mouth. God wants his daughters to be peaceable, to be tranquil, to be at peace. That's what is being talked about here. And that will manifest itself in the way she holds herself and even what comes out of her mouth. It's going to be gentle and kind because she's not all... Mr. John O'Gwen used to say, all balled up inside. She's at peace. The word gentle here means meek. Meek has to do with humility and teachability. It means a mildness of disposition, a gentleness of spirit, humble, as Thayer's lexicon defines it. And God says these characteristics of a woman reflect her heart. And this is precious, very precious, he says, in my sight. Mrs. League wrote another article in the May-June 2012 uh, Living Church News entitled, A Quiet and Gentle Spirit. Let me read from her comments. She said, other women have fallen for the false idea that women can and should act tough, crude, and rough, as any of their male counterparts may. In the name of equality or liberation, these women go on to develop a loud, vulgar, and contentious spirit and personality which is not becoming to anyone. Today, when we as Christian women strive to emulate the holy women of old, it is we ourselves who must adorn the self with a gentle and quiet spirit. To do this takes hard work, study, and prayer. It's an ongoing process which we must cultivate carefully until it becomes a godly habit. It does not just happen. It often means going against the worldly society around us. We must work diligently to maintain and enhance such godly character in ourselves. Really powerful observations and encouragement from Mrs. League, a longtime minister's wife in God's church. Point number three, action number three, was learn to develop a meek and quiet, not silent, spirit. It's okay to have vim and vigor and to be excited about life, ladies. This doesn't mean you all have to wear a burqa over your head and and not be heard from. You can be vibrant. You can be excited. You can be even a little bit of a spitfire. But... God is looking for women who are settled and at peace with who they are. <clears throat> it was at a house, a home closing uh, about a year ago when the Living University houses were purchased. 
And it was an interesting situation. We were there with a, a husband and a wife who were selling one of the homes and at the same time getting a divorce, which was really a sad thing. They had a little girl who was involved, and it was sort of gut-wrenching to, to know about. <clears throat> and as they were sitting there, you know, we've all been around long enough to know that a divorce takes two. And they both, I'm sure, were responsible but it was interesting, some interesting comments were made afterward about the lady who was there. She was dressed sharp, business suit, makeup on perfectly. She had it together. She was a strong woman, obviously, by looking at her. But she was hard. She was a dominating person. She had that look in her eye, get out of my way or I'm going to eat you alive. Ladies, you know that look because you felt it from others. Gentlemen, you know that look because you felt it from ladies. It's the way of the world. It's the way Satan society wants to push women. God's concept of a meek and gentle spirit is a counter to that hard and domineering perspective that Satan tries to drive into women and his society tries to drive into women. Action three, learn to develop a meek and quiet spirit. We've got to help our daughters do this. And and brethren, it takes work. Final point, and probably the most important. What's another action? We could go on and probably add 20 points. I encourage you to finish the sermon. Add some more points to this. What does God expect of a godly woman? How do we raise godly women? Add some more points. But the final point I'm going to give you, the final action is, learn to fear the Lord. And if you're in that process, you might put in parentheses after it even more. Godly women learn to fear the Lord. If we're going to raise godly daughters to become godly women, granddaughters, nieces, we've got to teach them to fear God, to fear the Lord. Proverbs 31, verse 30. Let's go there. Proverbs 31. And verse 30. Proverbs 31, 30 here near the end of the chapter. Charm is deceitful, beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Ladies, you want praise? You want praise from men and women around you and from children? You want praise from the Father on high? Learn to fear Him even more. If we teach our daughters to learn to fear God first, they will be praised. Mr. Wyatt Siselka wrote an article in, for the uh, March-April 2011 Living Church News entitled, A Cherished Christian Woman. If you haven't read it in the last six years, you might want to go back and read over it again. Very well done. Very encouraging. But he says, he made a comment. He said, the virtuous wife is foremost, foremost, first off, she's foremost a Christian. She's growing within the body of Christ, which is the church, to the fullness of Christ. As such, her focus is first on the Lord God, then on her husband, and on her family. God is first. We've got to teach our daughters that God has always got to be first. When my wife and I were dating, courting, getting more serious, I made a comment to her. I said, if you stick around with me, 
you're going to have to be happy with being second in my life. You'll never be first. And she, she, she understood where I was coming from, and she looked me back in the eye and she said, you've got to be happy with being second. She meant that God was always going to be first. I, I was already hooked, but if I wasn't, that would have done it for me. This woman focuses on God first. And if it remains that way, we're going to have a great marriage and a wonderfully blessed family. That was a test, and she passed it. That would have been a deal breaker for me if she hadn't responded that way. A godly woman fears God and puts him first. Proverbs 9.10, I won't turn there. You're familiar with it probably. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How many women want to be wise and full of knowledge? Proverbs 1.7 says fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We've got to fear God. That's the start. A woman cannot be wise if she doesn't fear God. Yes, she'll be wise in worldly ways. But fearing God is the paramount point. It's the undergirding of godly wisdom. Matthew 6.33. Another memory scripture I won't turn to. Matthew 6.33. What should be our first priority as a Christian? We should know this one. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added. This has to be the modus operandi, the, the main focus of any godly woman. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is the fear of God. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus Christ, near the end of his ministry, was meeting with a family who he loved, talking in their home, Luke chapter 10, being served by them. We have the situation of Mary and Martha here, Luke chapter 10. Verse 38, and we'll read probably down to verse 42. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. We heard about that in the sermonette today. We can become distracted even with good things. She was distracted with much serving and she approached him, Christ, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Come on, Jesus. Come on my side. My sister's lazy and I'm doing all the work myself. And what was Christ's comment? Come on, Mary, your place is in the kitchen. Is that how he responded? No, how did he respond? Verse 41, Jesus answered and he said to her, Martha... Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. Again, in the words of the sermonette, you're distracted by so many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which is not or which will not be taken away from her. What did Mary choose? She choose, chose to sit at the feet of God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he was there for a short time and she knew it. She chose to focus there. Mrs. Colleen Frank wrote a woman-to-woman article last October entitled, Martha, Distracted or Disciple? 
She says, we may not have Jesus physically in our midst to teach us like Martha and Mary, but we have his teaching in our Bibles. What in our society keeps us distracted? In addition to our normal physical duties, we have the social pulls from TV, movies, internet, Facebook, emails, to name a few. Setting priorities will reduce our distractions and keep us focused on God, our first priority. God wants us as women to be both his servants and his students. He wants us to be his servants and his students. That's profound. We've also been invited to sit at his feet as we study his word. Make the right choice and do not be a distracted disciple. Mrs. Frank writes to her sisters in Christ. You know, it's interesting. We've talked about four actions that women can take today. And they're all critically important. They're all actions that God wants to be taken. But it can be easy to focus on the first three of those and forget the fourth, the last. If we focus on the first three and don't fear the Lord first, the first three don't matter, do they? We've got to teach our daughters, our nieces, our granddaughters to fear the Lord first. Too many strong women today, brethren, want to go it alone and do everything for themselves. We had, we had toddlers at one point. Some of you have them now. Many of you have had them in the past. What happens when a toddler gets to the point of two, three, they realize they've got some skills and abilities and they want to do something? And you as a parent or grandparent do it in their place. They say, no, me do it. Or something of that nature. You know, it's sadly ironic as many women in society today are saying the same thing. No, let me do it. Let me do it. I can't tell you. I've had a number of women basically say that to me in the world when I've held a door open for them. I can hold that myself. My son and I were at a store a year ago loading some heavy furniture onto the back of our car, and there were two women next to us, one in her 50s, and it it looked like her mom who was in her 70s. And they had a, I can't remember what it was, but it was something that probably weighed 50 or 75 pounds. Not super heavy, but significantly heavy and awkward. And I just said to them, do you mind if my son and I help you put that in the back of the truck? And the younger woman said, no, we can do it ourselves. Not even a thank you, kiss my foot. For those of you who are from the South. It was sad. They wouldn't even let us help. She's going to put her mom at risk of messing up her back so she doesn't have to be helped by a man. Today, a truly godly woman realizes that it is not by her might or her power that she moves forward in a godly way. It's by God's spirit. Zechariah 4.6 Godly women learn to fear God. We've got to teach our girls as they become godly women to fear the Lord first. Brethren, this society that Satan has orchestrated as the God of this age is designed and intended to prevent men and women from developing into the godly gentlemen and ladies that God intends, that he originally intended. It's our job to help our daughters, our granddaughters, our nieces, 
the girls in our congregation, develop the character traits of a truly godly woman. It's a difficult task. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes dedication. For those of you who are women now, God wants you to work hard to come out of this world and be not partakers in her sins, as Revelation 18 talks about. He wants you to recognize the anti-God attitudes and norms in society around us that are pushing us to go away from and not recapture the true biblical values that God wants for us. As you work to do this, ladies, you will become even happier. You'll become more fulfilled. You'll become more richly blessed. And ultimately, your families will too. We've talked today about a godly path to womanhood that requires the following actions. And these are just a few. It requires learning why God has created you and embracing that purpose. We talked about that. It requires learning how to be a godly helper. It requires learning how to develop a meek and quiet, quiet, not silent, spirit. And it requires learning to fear the Lord even more. Brethren, learning to become a woman after God's own heart should be paramount in the life of all godly women. Our daughters, our granddaughters, our nieces need to be taught how to do this and which attitudes and societal norms to avoid. As a woman, I encourage you, continue to work hard to build more of these godly character traits and actions into who you are. As Mr. Seselka wrote in his article, being a true woman of God is a high calling. It's one that all godly women should aspire to and be taught to aspire to. It's one that our young ladies need to know the importance of. I encourage you to study this subject even more deeply, to work to put it into practice even more. If you want to learn some more, I encourage you to watch for our Living University class on Christian women. I also encourage you, if you're not doing this, jump on the website and go back and read the many, many articles entitled Women to Women. They're encouraging, they're uplifting, and they're really worth meditating on. Have a wonderful remainder of the Sabbath.